Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Would you open up uh, to the book of James? Uh, We're going to read James 1. Uh, verses 1 through 18. I'll give you a second if you need to grab a Bible in the back or you're flipping through your phone. Just kidding. There's no flipping. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can take a seat. Well, it's good to see you guys here uh, tonight. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. And so tonight, uh, we have a lot to cover. It's 18 verses. It's quite a bit, and uh, but it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. We'll be in James, and we'll be in the book of James for the remainder of the fall. And there might be other messages that we do interspersed, but for the most part, as a community, we'll walk through uh, the book of James from beginning to end, uh, verse by verse, um, until we're done with it. And so now, James is a, a natural follow-up, I think, from our summer series, which if you were with us this summer, we talked about holiness. And what we, the three things we learned through June, to, uh, through the, our July and August gatherings is that God is holy, God has made us holy, and then God calls us to participate in spreading his holiness to the world. So that's where we left off last week. But the question that arose for our team from that series was, well, how do disciples of Jesus practically live a holy life, set apart for God in all of their ways. What, what does that actually look like? Because holiness and, and, and Christianity and living a life following Jesus can seem very theoretical. Yeah, be a good person. Don't curse too much. Don't drink a lot. You know, try not to sleep around a lot. It, it, just, it just seems theoretical. Like, like, that's good for some people. And I'd like to be a good person. But, but how does the Christian life actually play out? And so the answer to that is the book of James. So the book of James is an immensely practical letter. I'm going to spend just a few minutes here right now just kind of setting up the book before we dive into the text. And so James is an immensely practical letter. 
It, it actually has the largest amount of commands than all of the new, other New Testament books. But what we'll find here as we go throughout the text, uh, not just tonight, but through all of the fall, is that uh, every command that James gives to his readers is a response to the power and beauty of the gospel of Jesus. It's not just a command just for command's sake. It derives its power and authority from the gospel of Jesus. But what I love most about the book of James is, is that it's authentic and gritty. Like it has some really hard yet true things that need to be said to us. It doesn't really hold back any punches. In fact, as I'm prepping you for tonight, as I look forward to all the messages that I have to preach, that I have the privilege of preaching, I'm quite nervous that y'all may not like me as much at the end of the fall because it is just a difficult book. But while there are hard sayings and true sayings, it's also a letter full of understanding and sympathy about the struggles that humanity faces as they seek to be disciples of Jesus in an unholy world. Now, the book of James was written, it was actually one of the first books written in the New Testament. It was written somewhere between 40 to 50 AD. And the reason James is writing the book of James, or letter of James, is, that, is because the disciples of Jesus that he's writing to were beginning to reintroduce the ways of the world into the daily life of the church of Jesus Christ. And so what he's wanting to, to show us, he was wanting to, his readers to know, is that disciples of Jesus are set apart for who? Just Jesus. That's why you follow the way of Jesus, not the way of anyone else. Now, often, you, we, can, we can often idealize the first century church. I think it's pretty prominent, uh, maybe among Gen Z, and I might be wrong, but it's what I've seen. Uh, you might find pockets of Christians saying, well, we, I just want to be an Acts 2 church. Like, you read Acts for the first time, you're like, yeah, that's what we need to be. We need to break bread and share our goods and, you know, sell our property, and everyone's not in need, and thousands of people came to faith, and, like, that's what I want to see. And you think, man, like, the Acts 2 church is perfect. It's not. Like as we read the book of James, we're gonna have a, a glimpse of what the first century church looked like and it was messy, real messy, just like we are messy. You, you know, in fact, if you look at the timeline between Jesus ascending to the right, to the right hand of the Father and, and the Acts church being established, between that moment of Acts 2 and the writing of James, guess how many years it took? It was a decade maybe a decade and a half, two at most. So it takes about 10 to 15 years before the people of God forgot the ways of Jesus. And so James is a reintroduction both to the readers of, of James, but also to us, to the ways of Jesus because the first century church was not perfect and neither are we. I love how relatable this is going to be for us. So, so the letter of James is a reintroduction then to the ways of Jesus, and it's a necessity for every generation. Because just like in the world of James, we too live in a space where there are varying interpretations on how to be a Christian, and, and many are left confused on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But what my hope is for us as a community, and what my hope is for us as a young adult community, is that we will read the, the letter of James and it will serve as a pastoral guide to us as we attempt to answer the question, how then should we live? Now let's turn back our attention to the text for tonight in James 1. So James, again, he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. That's what it says in the very first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And the 12 tribes is, is an allusion uh, uh, to an Old Testament reference, meaning uh, the 12 tribes of Judah, Israel, in the dispersion. Dispersion meaning the spreading out. And so these Jewish Christians are spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And these Christians are compromising their faith by reintroducing worldly practices. Okay, we remember that, right? But the reason they're doing this, because like we read this sometimes, we think idiots. But instead of doing that, may we ask first, why are they doing that? Why are they reintroducing those ways? What could be so compelling or so difficult or what would be necessary in their life that would turn from them to turn from Jesus back to the world? And so the reason they're doing this is because they're facing great trial and suffering. 
You know, most of these Christians, like we, we, we have a concept of what a Christian can look like as we live in the Western world. And it's, it's quite easy to be a Christian here. And, and most of us have great privileges that the rest of the world does not have. In fact, most of the privileges that we have here, the first century church would have dreamed of having. But most of these Christians, these Jewish Christians are poor. And some are poor because they lost their social and familial status when they decide to follow Jesus. And others are being economically exploited uh, because rich Jews and elite Romans are targeting them. See, at the time that James was writing this letter, there was this ongoing conflict where the rich and powerful within the Roman Empire would rob the poor of their land and by virtue rob them of any chance of making ends meet. Think how difficult it would be for you to not know when your next paycheck will come. Whether there'll be food on a table, whether there will be a home to go back to, whether your family will still be there when you come back. Great suffering. And these Jewish Christians are caught up in this cluster of religious persecution and socioeconomic tension. So imagine this. You have a people who are tempted to be called idiots, but they're not. And they decided to follow after Jesus and they thought things would get better but for the last decade or so, their circumstances aren't doing well. They've lost money, they lost power, homeland, familiar relationships, and ultimately, there seems to be no sense of stability and security. These people are desperate. And they're desperate for relief for suffering. And as I read tonight's text, it baffles me that this is James's response to a suffering people. What does he say? In verses two to four, he says that instead of avoiding the trials, because that's what we do, right? If something hard is coming your way, what do you do? You sidestep it, right? You avoid it. But he says instead of avoiding the trials and finding ways to get out of it, he tells them to endure the trial. So this begs the question, how can disciples of Jesus endure the trials of life? How can we get through suffering as Christians? See, we live in a world, honestly, that does not prepare young adults or really anyone on how to suffer. Like the Western world is so obsessed with comfort that we cry out in anguish at the slightest moment of difficulty. Our Wi-Fi is just too slow. Amazon took three days instead of two. I paid for Prime, dang it. I have to do laundry again. Right? There's actually this meme that I saw that captured this wonderfully. On one side of it is this person praying to God saying, God, why do you give me your hardest battles? And on the other side is God's response. He says, I don't. You're my weakest soldier. And these battles are so easy. It's just a work email. Why are you crying? And we are not prepared as a people to suffer. But here's the thing. Hear me on this. There is nothing like suffering that will shake the bedrock of your Christian faith. And if you're not a believer and you're here tonight, you can attest to this, that there is nothing like suffering that will make you reconsider your whole life. And here's the kicker. It's not just that we're unprepared for the suffering. It's that it is impossible to avoid it. Impossible. Tim Keller writes this in his book on pain and suffering. He says, no matter what precautions you take, no matter how well we've put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. It's a great way to start the night. But you know this to be true. Because suffering is at the core of our human story. Each one of us here tonight has experienced the marks of pain and the reality is when we don't know how to navigate through the chaotic waters of suffering, we are filled with bitterness, anger, fear, and vengeance to the point where all our relationships become drenched with manipulation and control. But this is not the life the Christian is meant to live. And nor is this the what he offers when he said, I will give you eternal life. So what can James teach us tonight about how to endure the trials of this life? Well, there are four things in this text that will teach us, 
not just as young adults, but as Christians, as, as disciples of Jesus, on how to endure the trials of life. The, the, the first thing that needs to change in us, that James says, is the first thing is that we need to have a new perspective on suffering. It's the first thing. See, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, right? But only as an interruption. So we see suffering as hopeless and ultimately pointless. And this only adds to the despair that looms over us when we're experiencing the difficulties of life. So like we're out here, right? We're living our best life. You know, we can afford to pay for wah-wah gas. We can do our normal thing. We're doing our thing, going to work at Starbucks or Universal or Disney. Or maybe you have a big boy job. That's a, no, that, that's not a big boy job. I, you know, never mind. You're out here trying to do our thing. I'm gonna get in trouble for, for not even, this is why I stick to the scriptures. You know, just read it here. So we're out here just living our best life. And all of a sudden, a trial comes out of nowhere. And our life seems to be ruined because there's no way that anything good can come from these moments of trials and suffering. That's the secular view. But James offers us a biblical view. He says, listen, there is a purpose to the trials and suffering of your life. That's why in verse two, what does he say? Count it all what? Joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, He's talking about pure joy when we face trials of various kinds. And see, the only way for us to be able to view a trial or suffering with joy is if we know there's a purpose to it. Now, this might seem confusing, but that's only because we don't understand joy. See, we think joy is what? Happiness. That's all it is. It's just happiness. But James isn't asking us to have a smile on our face when a trial comes our way. It's not like, man, like you're out there, you got hit by a car, you're on the ground. Someone's like, hey, how are you doing? You're like, oh, praise God. <laughs> I, you know, I needed to go to the chiropractor, but I'm God, Jesus sent me a truck. You know what I'm saying? Hallelujah. No, that ain't it. See, the word joy, <laughs> so dumb. The word joy <laughs> is a settled contentment in every situation that stems from trust in God. That's what joy is. It's a state of being, not just emotion. And so James is saying here that we can have contentment in our trials because God is going to do a work through that trial and that it will be worth it. Now, what exactly is a trial according to James? And now, as I'm saying this, I know, see, I've interspersed a little comedy because I can already tell there's a little tension in the room. Because trials are not fun. And there are probably many of you here who's sitting through a trial yourself. You are sitting here suffering, hoping to hear a comforting word. Uh, maybe you were hoping to hear that God will take it away. But instead, what you've heard is, wait, God is actually letting me suffer? See, trials are an unexpected negative event that we walk through and it causes us pain and suffering. It is an encounter with something that puts you to the test by taking you to the end and beyond yourself. And you might be thinking, Caesar, God allows me and puts me to trials like that? How dare he? I thought he loved me. He cared about me. Why would he let me suffer? Yes, God loves you. But yes, God will allow and sometimes send trials your way. See, God actually allows trials because he loves you. Because whether or not God sends the trials, whether or not he does it, suffering will come into your life. Remember, James says, when you meet trials, not if, but when. And God, in all of his power and sovereignty, is the only one able to repurpose our suffering. It's like the, it's like the story of Joseph in the, in, the, in, the, in the Genesis story. If you know about Joseph, he, he, he is the brother, he's the youngest brother who is sold into slavery by his brothers. And as he's sold into slavery, he's wrongly accused because he was refusing to sleep with, with, a, with the wife of, of, his, of his boss. 
And he eventually becomes the right hand of the Pharaoh. And he actually becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And when Joseph comes face to face with the very brothers who broke his heart by putting him in a jail cell and selling him into slavery, when he comes face to face with them, these are the words that Joseph professes about God. Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil for me, brothers, but God meant it for good. And from that point, God would use Joseph to save God's people from starvation and death. James knows that God is the only one who can repurpose and redirect our suffering for good. So what James is saying is, listen, listen, I need you to be able to see through your trial towards its God-intended result. Because really, because really, when, when, when things get rough, all you see is, my life's over. You just want to lay on the floor and just cry. And that's okay. We've all been there. I was there earlier myself. So what is God's intended result? Our trials produce two things, James says. The first thing that produces is a deep-rooted faith. Read verse three with me. For you know, he says, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word, steadfastness means endurance. And he's talking about our faith, the testing of your faith that produces a deep faith. And deep-rooted faith is necessary when trials come because otherwise, what will happen? You will just fall away. There was this project a couple years ago called the Biosphere 2 Project. And it was, a, it was created as a research tool for scientists to study Earth's living systems. And, and the scientists were just trying to find if there were new ways for them to farm and, and create innovations that didn't harm the planet. Maybe we could create these things genetically instead of having it happen in nature. And, and, and the funny thing is their discovery had nothing to do with farming. But this is what, this is what, they, 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 what the results of their study showed. The trees inside the biosphere too grew rapidly more rapidly than they did outside of the dome. But they also fell over before reaching maturation. After looking at the root systems and outer layers of bark, the scientists came to realize that a lack of wind in biosphere two caused a deficiency of stress wood. Stress wood helps a tree position itself for optimal sun absorption and it helps trees grow more solidly. And without stress wood, a tree can grow quickly, but it cannot support itself fully. It cannot withstand normal wear and tear and survive. In other words, the trees need some stress in order to thrive in the long run. You see, we are so obsessed with never facing any trials at all. But even in nature, it shows that, listen, even without a little resistance to help you grow stronger, you can grow up, but you will never grow strong. And so God uses the resistance of trials in our lives to create in us a deep-rooted faith so that when the trials of life come and press up against us, we don't come and fall over. But the second thing that God uses trials for is to make us more like Jesus. That word that he uses for testing in verse 3, the testing of your faith, that Greek word is the Greek word dokimion. And it's used only in two places in the New Testament here and in first Peter. And on both occasions, the image that these New Testament authors are employing is the picture of a forger who takes gold, puts it in a pot and puts it through a refinement process. It puts it in the heat, in the heat, in the heat to remove all the impurities that are in it. And the way the forger would know if the process was complete, was if it looked into the pot of gold and if he, could, he or she could see their reflection in the gold, then they knew the gold was prepared. And so it is with us, with Jesus. We are refined by the trials of this life so that any impurities that block us from reflecting the image of Jesus in and through us would be removed. This is a new perspective, that God repurposes our trials to move wasteful pain to supercharged spiritual growth that results in deeper faith in Jesus and cause us to look more like him. All right, we're done. No, 
Because you're like, okay, that sounds good, but that's really hard. Like, the most I can do is a sauna. You know, like, I have a sauna level of ability. I'm a wimp. So put me in a sauna, I can get out of it. But put me in a fire, I don't know about you, I'm out. So James wants us to understand, yeah, there's a purpose to our suffering, but he also wants us to know that there is aid in our suffering. Let's read verse five together. He says, if any of you, if any of y'all lack wisdom, what should you do? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the second thing that James says we need, to, we need is to develop a language of dependence. A language of dependence. James says in verse five that if we lack wisdom, what do we do? Ask God for it. Now, wisdom is necessary in trials because it helps us navigate the difficulty of trials in a godly way. It's, it's, like a, it's like a GPS in a storm, if you will, because suffering can and often will blind you. And so wisdom is the means of grace by which God gives us to help navigate us through suffering. But behind the asking for wisdom is a greater reality. See, we need more than just the wisdom. We need the person providing that wisdom. Like if you're injured, right? Is it helpful just to know where the hospital is? Or do you need someone to get you to there, to that location in the midst of your pain? See, in verse five, James is getting at this deeper reality that if you are lacking anything that is necessary to get you through trials, ask him for it. Jesus, if you were to sum up the teachings of prayer in the gospels, it's done in one word. Ask, ask, ask. Because how else do you ask God for something but through prayer? And this is why prayer, I love that James provides the spiritual practice for us as a way to endure trials because prayer, it, it, it's not like you have a genie that you can call up and be like, God, I need some help. I need you to help me out here, okay? Prayer is more profound than that. Prayer is the daily practice of reminding your soul that without the intervention of God, your life would fall apart. That is what prayer is. Try, and the thing is, trials at the very best, no matter how hard or how easy they may seem, are very good at showing us that this thing that we call life, we don't got it together. We just don't have control of it. And no amount of money or power or planning can stop bereavement, illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other problems from entering your life. Your humanity is fatally fragile. Our humanity is fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. But the problem is not that prayer is dangled in front of us. It's that we just don't turn to it. Because most of us turn to God only when we've exhausted every other option, right? Because surely God wants me to be a stronger soldier of faith. He wants me to handle my business. When I can't, then I can go to him. But James says, listen, 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 no. James says, Christians are to pray to the God who gives generously and without reproach. He's not waiting for you to get strong. He just knows that you're weak. And when you come to him in your weakness, he will not laugh at you and call you weak. He will not call you stupid. He's not, even, even if you call on him on the last second, he's not going to be like, oh, finally. Good job, genius. No. Even as you're neck deep into it, he will run to you as you cry out for him and he will pull you out. See, developing a life of prayer is ultimately to develop a life of dependence. A life of dependence. Remember, there's a scene in the Gospels where, where 
the disciples are in the boat with Jesus and Jesus is downstairs sleeping. And the reason why that's funny is because there's a storm happening outside and the, 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 the waves are crashing. I can imagine the wind is blowing so strong that the sails start to rip and the rolling thunders are heard and the, and the lightning is seen and the, and the disciples are freaking out because you know what? Like that's scary stuff. You will drown. If, if not, it will tip size and you will just fall and die in the storm. And so they run to Jesus. Why? Because they, they, they know that he's the only one that could undo the storms of this life. There's this other scene where Jesus himself, he goes, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. It's towards the end of his life before the cross. And, and he's there, he's knowing that there's a trial approaching. There's a trial that he's gonna have to endure, the trial of the cross. And he goes and he takes some of his best friends and they fall asleep because they can't handle it. They can't stay up late. I don't know why, but they can't. But Jesus is out here praying to the point where he's, he says that, that beads of blood start dripping from his forehead and he's praying to the Father. He's saying, Father, if there's another way, would you give me another way? But if not, help me accomplish your will that your will will be done. And what we see in both of these events in the life of Jesus is that he had a deep reliance, not on himself, but on God the Father. This is the point of prayer, to position us dependently under the power and authority of the only one who can help us in our suffering. This is why Charles Spurgeon wrote this famous quote, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. In context, Spurgeon would say, I've learned to kiss the trials that throw me into the arms of God. But you see, if we don't have a deep reliance and trust in God, when trials come our way, there's only one option left for us. We will look for a way out and try to take things into our own hands. And this leads us to our third thing that James provides. He says, we need to reject self-reliance. Verses nine through 11, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass so its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now remember, James is talking to poor Christians who are experiencing persecution for their faith. They're being robbed of their monetary gain by other powerful Roman groups. Now, if you were to ask yourself, what would you do when you're facing pain? What would you do? You try to find a way to get out of it. You try to find a way to resolve it. You take matters into your own hands. Now, many of us, we do that through the pursuit of materials because we just live in a world that says, listen, if you have enough, you won't suffer much. In fact, if you do well enough, you won't suffer at all. And so we become convinced. Let's pursue money. Let's pursue what the rich have because they have it all together. You know, ironically, do you know uh, the profession that has the highest suicide rate? CEOs and doctors who also happen to be some of the richest people in our culture. So it seems even in having money, they still don't have it all together. And so what James is really getting at is, listen, listen, he says, whether it's money or any other material gain that we can get our hands on in this life, it will never satisfy because it, it like anything else, will fade away. It will fade away. So don't pursue that. Now, instead of self-reliance, what Jesus calls us to through the book of James is for us to have a, a dependence on God. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. When you're in the midst of trials and you have nothing to grasp onto or you're trying to grasp onto Jesus, the devil will begin to whisper something into your ear. Verse 13, James says, let no one say when he is tempted or when he is tested, it's the same word, that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. You see, as I, when we are experiencing suffering, 
to such a high degree, or maybe it's, it's just little sufferings that happen, compound on one another over time. You know, like when it rains, what does it say? It pours. You get to have this nagging feeling. I think God's against me. I think God is not for me. See, that word temptation that he uses here is the same word that he uses earlier to talk about testing. So why does James then move that word from being testing to temptation? There's a a a Greek scholar, Douglas Moo, explains that what can change a trial into a temptation is the attitude with which we meet the the trial. And when we fail the trial, we we turn to blaming God. And this is the lie that the enemy will try and make you believe, that God is against you. And you'll hear that. On TikTok, you'll hear a plethora of people, uh, of deconstructionists, of ex-evangelicals. And I have no bone to pick with them. They've been hurt. But in their gaining of popularity, what they will tell you, so God is not for you and neither is the church. It is better to look out for yourself. You'll have friends and family who will tell you, why, why are you choosing to listen to God? Get your crap together. Don't listen to him. Do this other thing. Psalm 42 and Psalm 115, there's this, the psalmist writes where he's facing suffering and there's this interesting phrase that his mockers say in his direction. And it's this phrase, where is your God now? Is it not suffering that makes you question, where is my God now? And if you believe that lie that God has abandoned you, he's jumped ship and has left you to yourself in the most dire time of your life, we will be tempted to begin to follow our own desires to help us get through the trials. Because if you don't have God, then you have to find something else. You have to find a new God. You have to find a new thing to help you get through your suffering. And let me tell you, when you're in your room at night and you're feeling like God has abandoned you, porn sounds really good. At least for just a minute of your day, you feel happy. Or when you feel like no one will love you, you feel lonely and rejected hitting up a dating app and just giving yourself to another sexual partner feels good because at least there's another human body next to yours because you crave intimacy. Whatever it may be, all of it may help for a moment, whether it's a person, whether it's a drug, whether it's a substance, whether it's a person, it will leave you in as much pain as you walked into it with. And so in moments of trial, you will either stay focused on dependence on God or on self-reliance. I love what Tim Keller writes. I just like Tim Keller, so he's gonna be here a lot. But he says, if you seek God as as a non-negotiable good of your life, you will get happiness thrown in. If, however, you aim mainly at personal happiness, you will get happiness neither. You'll get neither. But what will keep us from falling into sin in the midst of our trials is the last exhortation James gives us. So the three things, just to summarize up to this point, we need a new perspective. We need to to develop a language of, of dependence We need to reject self-reliance. And finally, we need to remember the goodness of God. Because the only thing that will keep us from chasing after sin and giving into our temptations is an encounter with the goodness of God. This is how James finishes his. He says, do not be deceived, 
my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the kind of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he wants us to see God rightly. And he says, listen, God is not the tempter. He doesn't put trials in your way or allow you to experience trials so that you would fail. That's not his MO. That's what Satan does. That's why the common name for Satan is tempter. Because what he wants is for you to fall into sin. That is not what God wants. He wants life for you. He wants goodness for you. He says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Matthew and his, I mean, uh, Jesus and his famous teaching in the book of Matthew says, listen, if you evil parents can give your, good, give your children gifts, good gifts, how much more so would the good father give good gifts to his children? And so he says, listen, you need to know that God is the one who only gives good And that everything he puts in your path is perfect and is good for you. But what I love more than anything else is this reality. He says, these gifts come down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And what James is saying here is, listen, what you need to know more more concretely than you've ever experienced in your whole life is that God never changes. God has never changed. In fact, he brings up your new birth. He says, listen, the same God that sent his son for you uh, to die on your behalf so that you would be given eternal life for you to be made a new creation. This same God who did that for you, who closed the gap between death and life for you, he would close the gap between an unholy people and a holy God. This same God who brought you to life is that same God today. Your circumstances will change. Your trials will have levels of difficulty. It may seem like he's abandoned ship, but this God never leaves. This God never changes. He has never abandoned you, he says, because he does not change. And if he wants life for you then, do you not think he wants life for you now? And so what James is calling us to see is that God is good and that he desires only our good. And trials and temptations are not a sign that he hates you or that he's abandoned you. In fact, the testing of our faith through trials allows us to have a personal encounter with him. You see, one of the main ways that move us from just, oh, I know things about God to a personal encounter with him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. Jesus says that he is close to the brokenhearted. He is, in a, in a special way, he is close to you in your suffering, that, that he is not when you're not suffering. And that's good news because suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Impossible. I moved to Florida seven years ago from New York. And I came down here because I've been dating a girl long distance, three years. She was living here, I was living in New York. And I figured when I graduated from college, this is a good time for me to figure out if we're gonna get married. Um, well, I moved down here. And after a month we broke up, actually Caleb drove me to her house because she had my car. And I remember like, what do I do? He goes, good luck. <laughs> and so, nah, that's kind of what happened. <laughs> yeah, seven years ago, you know, muddy detail. Um, but I, I came down here and I was alone because not only did I not have a girlfriend anymore, but she took all the friends that I, well, she didn't take them. They decided, they picked her. And so I had no friends and no family down here. Um, I, I really didn't have any friends. I mean, Caleb was kind enough to me to drive me to break up with my ex-girlfriend, but, but I, I, I didn't have anybody yet. And starting a new job, working at the church, I was starting seminary. And so I was, I was just neck deep. And I remember the end of that first year, things had just been more difficult than I knew how to handle. That, I don't remember when it happened. But I woke up one morning and I just couldn't get out of bed anymore. Just couldn't. And I thought it would go away and then the second day, 
I couldn't get out of bed. And the third day, I couldn't get out of bed. And the fourth day, I, the best I could do was take a shower. And there were just day after day after day where I just couldn't get out of bed because it just became so overwhelming. I would, what you would use a DSM-5 to say I was clinically depressed. And I remember, I, I don't remember when it happened either. I didn't know what else to do. So I just got on my knees. Just got on my knees. And I was so mad at God. There are things that I said that I'm not sure I could ever say again, or I should say here, there are things that I didn't even know were in my heart. There were things that I needed to say to God. And I remember just being like, I thought you loved me. You sent me here. I, you, you told me to move to Florida. I, I was following you. I was obedient to you. I thought you were supposed to be with me. And at some point, as I just cried out to him, I just felt him wrap himself around me. His promises were true that he would be near me in my brokenheartedness, that his peace would be mine and that I would feel his love. God had not abandoned me. God had never left, but it wasn't until that moment of my greatest suffering up to that point. And when he showed up, I knew, I knew from then on that God would never leave me and that God never changed. So you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. See, the key to enduring trials and what James has been trying to help his readers see is that you can endure, we can endure the trials of life when we move away from self-reliance towards God dependence. It's the only way. Because the opposite is you take things into your own hands and you blow it up. But if you place your hands in the God of the universe, everything will work out. Now you see, Jesus, he's called a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53 tells him this. And, and the reality is that Jesus knows our suffering. He knows what it is to suffer in this planet. His family rejected him. They were embarrassed by him. His friends scattered when Jesus was making his way up towards the cross. He was wrongly accused and innocently guilty. This is what Tim Keller writes again. He says, Jesus lost all his glory so that we would be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we would get access. He was bound, nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. And that is being cast away from God. See, Jesus endured the trial of suffering so that when we experience suffering, he could be there with us. And now every time you and I suffer, Jesus will now redirect it and repurpose it for our good and for his glory. This is the end result of enduring trials with Jesus. So where do we go from here? Like if God is with us in our suffering, what can we do? What are we free to do? And I would, and I would say it's more than just endure trials. It's more than just getting by. I say that in the midst of our trials, knowing that God is with us in our suffering, that we can now finally trust him with everything that we have the freedom to lay ourselves bare before him, that we can actually trust and follow what he says is good for us. So instead of us turning to our sin, instead of trying for cheap love and fake intimacy, that we don't need that because God has not abandoned us in our suffering. He's with us in our suffering. So we get the real deal that even in our suffering, we can experience true freedom, true love, real intimacy, real life. And here's the other great invitation that he gives to us. If we know that he's with us in our suffering, you don't have to be strong anymore. 
You don't have to always have it together, but that you can go before God. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this about prayer. You get to go before God and lay before him what is in you, not what you think should be in you. That you get to actually bear yourself before the God of the universe and say, listen, I suck at this thing. And he goes, yeah, I know, I'm here. So much freedom, so much comfort. This is the invitation to endure trial with a God who bears our burdens and carries us as we walk through the suffering of this life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this difficult yet freeing invitation that you are for us and not against us, that you reuse and repurpose the suffering of this life. There's no one else that can do that. Every other person, every other religion, every other worldview loses to suffering. But only under the banner of Jesus does suffering become our gain. Only in the kingdom of God does loss result in gain. God, I pray that as we leave this space, I pray, I pray, I pray that what will reverberate in our hearts is this truth. As the old hymn would say, take the whole world, but give me Jesus. Because when Jesus is all I have, Jesus is all I need. Your name we pray, amen. Now, before we respond in worship, before we sing, and it's gonna be a good song, I like it. I think you like it too. I want us to take a moment. You've just heard the word of God. Not because of me, you, I'm not God. You've heard his word preached. You've heard his word opened. You've had his word explained. God is speaking to you in your circumstances right now. And so there are some of you right now who are walking through deep suffering, deep suffering, and you're not quite sure you'll make it through the end. And that's you, I'd encourage you to spend this time, just be honest with God. Tell him exactly where you are and tell him exactly what you need. And he will show himself faithful. There's some of you who've experienced so much trial, pain, and suffering that you just have so much hatred. You have so much anger and so much bitterness. And that's been weighing on your shoulders. And tonight, God says, I want to set you free. And that's you. I would just ask that you would give that to Jesus. That you would lay on his feet your bitterness and your anger. And that you would ask him for the strength to take on his love, peace, joy, and freedom. And then finally, I would just ask, and this is for all of us, that if there are things in our lives that need to be purified out, that we would entrust ourselves to the process of trial. And now I'm not saying, all right, God, make my life really hard now. No. But that you would trust God enough to say, there are things in me I can't get out, but I know you love me and I know you want it out of me. So do what it takes and lay yourself bare in the hands of our savior, Jesus Christ. And I promise you will experience freedom like you've never had before. So take these moments, if any of you fall in any of those sections, just pray. And if none of those account for you, then spend a moment praying for those of us who are in a moment of suffering, who are weighed under guilt and have sin weighing us down. Take this moment to pray and then we'll sing. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes 
and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.